Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. With the pressure and general practice continuing to rise, it seems an odd time for Sajid Javid, the Secretary of State for Health, and NHS England to go on the attack and launch a new plan to tackle underperformance and sanction practices who they determine as not offering good enough access or enough face-to-face appointments. In today's episode, we'll be trying to figure out how it's come to this with the BMJ's news editor, Gareth Iacobucci, and hear from GP Lucy Martin, whose recently published research offers some insights into how we're all responding to it. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and the clinical editor of the BMJ. And joining me today, yes, we have a new guest. It's uh, Gareth. Hi, Gareth. Morning, Tom. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Looking forward to to talking to you about uh, what on earth is going on. Uh, (laughs) So you're you're the the news editor at at the BMJ, but specifically sort of interested in primary care matters. Is that right? Yes, yeah. So I've been, I guess, reporting on all matters primary care for some time, even prior to being at the BMJ. So, yes, yeah, so I, I guess I'm steeped in the kind of recent political history um, for what it is. So, um, <laughs> Excellent. Well, we yes, very much want to see where all this has come from and, uh, and maybe you can help us fix it or solve it. Um, <laughs> uh, and as usual as, as well, we've got Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. Good morning. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And still in lockdown in New Zealand, we've just been hearing Ugh. before that we, we recorded. <laughs> Unfortunately. Fingers crossed, we'll get there. Auckland just reached 90% popula- uh, eligible population with a single dose of the vaccine. So an 80% double jabbed. So we're we're on our way. Okay, fantastic. Okay, good. Uh, and Navjoit, hi. Hi, I'm Navjoit Lada. I am a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. And I am excited to hear Gareth tell us how we can fix what's going on in general practice. No pressure, Gareth. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, go on then, Gareth. Tell us then. No, no. <laughs> but yeah, we would to, to start with, with you, Gareth, and maybe um, just a bit of an overview. It's quite hard to follow what, what on earth is going on at the moment. There's lots of, it seems there's lots of different strands to this. But um, yeah, yes, maybe just, yeah. Can you try and give us a, a supported summary of where we are. I mean, should we, if we start with this kind of back and forth on face-to-face GP consultations, mm. maybe, is that, is that a good place to start? I mean... It, yes, I think I mean, so. It, that it, seems to be what's triggered it, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, to me, it just sort of shows the the muddled thinking in government and also the kind of short-term thinking, I suppose, as well, because cast your mind back to July 2020. It seems so long ago now, but, um, you know, barely, not, not even 18 months ago, we had the... England's health secretary Matt Hancock, who was very big on tech and digital, if you remember, um, he told all GP practices in England that all appointments should be done remotely by default, unless a patient needs to be seen in person. And um, GPs actually had some incentives added into their contracts, even to offer remote consultations. Um, and the, the view was this is a good thing. This is what patients want. Um, fast forward eighteen months, and in response to I guess some negative headlines in sections of the the press in the UK. We now have a new Secretary of State for Health, Sajid Javid, um, saying the opposite, the exact opposite. And 
not only saying that, but sort of, you know, in, insinuating that GPs are hiding by offering remote consultations, in, even though sort of we've been in a pandemic, it's, it's, you know, for patient safety as much as anything. And yeah, I guess it's just, it it's bizarre. And I guess very it's self-defeating really, because you, yeah. it, it's essentially sort of policy making by headline, isn't it really? That, that you know, it, it seems like the, these announcements have been in response to kind of trying to head off some negative press, but you're not, they're not really thinking about what the long-term impact is on a profession. If you're continually sort of bashing them over the head for something that they've actually been asked to do barely over a year ago. It's, um, I mean, I, I suppose that the confrontational approach is really demoralizing when, you know, practices have had to kind of totally transform the way they work, you know, since the pandemic, um, and they've also been trying, as you mentioned at the start, Tom, they've been trying to manage routine demand, the COVID vaccination programme, the, the backlog of care. And it now feels, you know, honestly, like the sort of GPs are an easy scapegoat, really, for a government that needs an easy target. Mm. And it's it's a kind of it's the narrative that's that's been building and the government seems to be quite happy to kind of feed yeah. in, feed into the narrative, really. It's yeah. it's it's very bizarre. And it, I guess. It just shows that sort of there's not much long term thinking going on because, as I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, this isn't going to help if you want to increase the number of GPs and recruit more and retain more. This type of approach, how it ha- I can't see how it's going to be helpful, really. Mm. Yeah. Can, can I ask you about the, the, the change at the, the top, if you like, in government between Matt Hancock and Sajid Javid? Is, is that relevant here? Is it, do they just have very different points of view or do you think this might have happened anyway yeah i think it probably has had an impact and i think this is the problem when you have a a job like health secretary where you know it it can change so quickly and most most um politicians that serve in this post don't serve in it for very long and so they they want mm. to make their mark mm. and they want to make it in a in a quick and easy way and making announcements like we're going to make league tables of gp practices to sort of um, drive up standards, you know, that can sit, that can be an easy sort of message to sell to the public, can't it? Mm, if, mm. You know, we know that access is a problem. It's been a problem since way before the pandemic and people do get frustrated at not being able to see a GP, but that's not because, you know, practices aren't open and they're, they're not offering appointments. It's because demand is high and um, we've, we, we don't have enough GPs, you know, that... <laughs> But I, yeah, I think Javid definitely has a, some different priorities to Matt's Hancock. I think. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to know exactly sort of what he's been brought in to do. I mean, if you if you if you look at the COVID um, response, it 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 does seem that he's been brought in to kind of deliver a more libertarian message. As soon as he came in, we had the sort of Freedom Day and everything in July, and it seemed like sort of. You know, has Boris Johnson brought him in because he wants to deliver this kind of, you know, shift yeah. the emphasis from public health to kind of, you know, back to the economy. Sajid Javid used to be chancellor. He's a former banker. Yeah. You know, it. That all these things that, yeah. you know, we, 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 we are second guessing a little bit why I mean, he's been put into place. But could, yeah. Could I, could I sort of be, um, defend Javid from, <laughs> I won't try and defend him too much, but <laughs> yeah, Hancock was so pro tech and, you know, the, the, the demands, to for all GP practices to offer online remote consultations and were so 
you know, extreme, but they, they they were quite extreme, weren't they? And and perhaps not in line with public demand or what they wanted. That maybe this is quite an easy uh, thing for Javid to to sort of rebalance that a bit and 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 make make a bit of political capital out of it at the same time. Yes, I, I think that's a, it's definitely a fair point. And and actually, if you go back to all the the coverage at the time of you know Matt Hancock wanting us all to digitise. Do you, you know the the leadership of the profession in the UK were warning about mm. going too far on this and saying you know we need to retain the face to face element and it's just it's a sort of strange irony that we've now had this kind of flipped over where GPs are being accused of of not doing this when actually you know it's like they're talking past each other a bit I feel like you know that I think it's it's accepted that some patients do value the kind of remote consultation but others still want to be seen face to face don't obviously again we're still in a pandemic as well don't forget Mm. so it's kind of that Mm. that has to be factored in but um it's yeah i think that that's fair what you say about sajid javid it it, it could be an easy win for him yeah i'm hogging gareth here do you want want to come in well one thing i wanted to ask gareth is one thing that you kind of hear in response to all of this is that, uh, you know, oh, well, the, you know, the politicians are saying this, but, you know, the elephant in the room is that it's all belies a kind of lack of funding or like chronic underfunding. And that's actually the real, the real discussion to have. Is that, is that true that that, that is the kind of root of all of this, do you think? Well, to some degree, yes. I mean, because obviously, you know, general practice has been underfunded over a, a decade, probably more, to be honest with you. It, it probably all even dates back to 2004 when GPs had this really big contract award that, um, you know, did boost income and as a result, you know, brought a lot of money and doctors into the profession. And ever since then, it sort of feels like the terms and conditions have kind of been gradually eroding away, which is, um, that's obviously that's going to damage morale over time if you're having kind of, 10 years of barely a pay rise or, you know, barely a sort of, it, it effectively amounts to a pay cut in a lot of instances because, you know, the money goes to the practice. It doesn't go to the individual doctor and practices are having to sort of absorb more costs and pay staff. And, you know, and to all this time, demand healthcare or demand for healthcare is going up and up and up and that hasn't been matched by the funding. So you're absolutely right. It, that's, that is the elephant in the room, really. Yeah, I find it very interesting that, you know, because um, obviously all of all of the Sajid Javid's response, I guess, is is in response to, you know, there was a big uh, Daily Mail campaign here calling for, you know, GPs to open as if they've been closed. But um, and, and there was a sense that it was coming from some patients, you know, that there was a sense of frustration from patients, which I guess is the, the bit I'm interested in is, mm. you know, actually are we delivering what patients want as in we as in uh, primary care and general practice? And I suppose that that's the bit that I often find quite sort of disingenuous, disingenuous really is that, you know, if there, if there is a, if there is a perceived lack in what general practice is delivering, um, some of that is around funding, but some of it also is just a sort of lack of honesty about a, a kind of conversation about what can primary care do, what is it, what is achievable you know all these conversations that we have time and again on this podcast about things mm. like how politically 
things like access to primary care prioritised over continuity, all of all of that sort of thing. We we don't seem to be able to have a kind of honest mm. conversation in the media about that because it's so, I suppose it's so politically, it's all caught up in funding and that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And uh, the other thing to mention is obviously this sort of push we've had over the last few years to doing more things in primary care that previously were done in secondary care and hospitals and uh, and that being seen as kind of a, a positive step but actually the funding hasn't moved with it so you're you know primary care has been asked to do more and more and more really without the resource to do it and the other thing I suppose if just thinking back to the kind of media headlines is that when there's a, a crisis going on in GP practices and primary care it doesn't make the front page because it it's kind of under the surface slightly. I mean, it, it mm. seems like if you've got ambulances queuing up outside a hospital, that will make the government act because it's a very visible sign that the NHS is not coping. But primary care, you know, will will, will carry on. And as, as much as it may be struggling, it might not be as visible that it isn't coping and therefore it doesn't get discussed. I think that that's a, a problem too. Mm. Um, Gareth, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more as an outsider, I, I've I've heard people talk about and criticize the quote unquote league tables of GP practices. But I wonder if you could say a little bit more like what is the argument being made in favor for them and why why are they not appropriate? I have my own ideas about that, but I'm just mm. curious kind of what's being said. So I suppose the argument for from the government side is that they're a way of um, driving up standards uh, or driving up um, of driving improvement, I suppose. But so the idea is that they want to take a small subset of practices that are offering the least amount of face-to-face appointments, and, and the data is collected on this, so it allows them to do it. And they want to um, publish these. I mean, they haven't called it a lead table, but if you publish a list from top mm. to bottom then, you know, that's effectively <laughs> what it is. So um, that's a league table. Um, and with the idea that, that that will sort of drive improvement by, you know, that those at the bottom kind of, um, you know, wanting to, to not be at the bottom. But I also guess that- th- threatening to, to go in and, um, you know, manage practices that mm. are at the bottom and yeah yeah absolutely know, try to force them to merge and and be taken over that sort of thing. It's what I hear. No, no, you're, you're quite right, Tom. Yeah, it's... it's um, yeah, they want to, they want to sort of, um, you know, it's, a, it's an iron fist approach, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's what it is, really. They, but um, I mean, it, the problems with that, aside from the whole kind of theoretical problem with kind of ranking practices when they each have a very distinct group of patients, mm-hmm. they may have different levels of funding, they may have different staffing mm-hmm. um, problems. Aside from the sort of theoretical argument against, it's also. They're also talking about sort of withdrawing or, you know, um, withholding funding from some of these practices that that are not performing, which seems very counterproductive because surely if they're not performing, they they might benefit from having that funding to to try and improve as well. uh... Yeah. Is this like, is this a long term strategy to privatise or part of a strategy to privatise where you publish practices that are poorly performing on an indicator over which they have very little control or or less control. And then you kind of mandate assistance and ultimately shut them down and privatize. Like where, where does this fit into the 
privatization of the NHS? Well, I, I suppose that the thing with GP practices is that technically they are sort of independent private entities already because of this sort of quirk as in terms of how they fit with the rest of the NHS. But I suppose what some, some you know some people argue that there is a kind of underlying kind of wish to maybe consolidate mm. more than privatize. So it we've we've had these sort of um, small practices that have existed here for 50, 70 years, perhaps where you might have one or two doctors working in a small building, serving a small population of patients. I think there has been a push over the last kind of 10 years or so to, to move away from that and to consolidate, have larger practices, bigger health centres providing wider range of services, but potentially losing out on some of that continuity of care. I haven't looked at the data in terms of which practices they are targeting now, but it it wouldn't be a giant leap to think that possibly smaller, less resourced practices might might be struggling, and um, and so it could be part of this sort of agenda, if you like, to kind of consolidate and almost corporatize. Yeah, the, um... which we saw a little bit with um, Quaff, the Quality Networks framework as well, where. Um, you know, you have these measures. But in this case, this seems, you know, face-to-face appointments is even less of a kind of established quality metric, if you like. It's just something they've, it's just sort of flavour of the month, which is, I guess, part of what makes it so frustrating that this could be used to drive those kind of changes. Totally. I mean, Jenny, it, you can go online and, and and Google your local practice and get probably hundreds of, of league tables of comparing practices within a borough, you know, um, nationally and comparing to national averages for things like percentage of people with diabetes who have had their HbA1c checked, that sort of thing. Um, across, yeah, a, hu- a huge range of things. And it's generally been thought to have been a, a good thing to almost, not quite, sh- I suppose shame is maybe not the right word, but <laughs> you, you want to be, be sure that you're not being outperformed by other practices and, um, so it is interesting that we're we're reacting so so much to to the idea of doing this for access, and also interesting again in my view, I, I think this is the thing that has been overlooked for a long time. It, the focus has been on other metrics when you might see or know of practices nearby that if you don't get through before nine o'clock in the morning, you know you're not going to get an appointment. You just have to go to one 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 or A and E and. So again, I, I feel like I'm like a conservative <laughs> sort of spokesman today, but um, you know, don't we in within general practice need to to hold up our hands a bit and say, you know, there is there is too much variability in that, and yeah. this this may not be the right, it definitely isn't the right way of going about it, but but maybe we should kind of get on board a bit more with trying to sort it out too. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, Tom. I mean. I think there is there is something there. There is something at the root of this. There is there is an issue um, that that um, we should be up for tackling around how people are able to access their their GP. Um, but I, I think it comes back to what I was saying before. I just wish we could have an honest conversation about it and not these kind of short term, like plucked out of thin air solutions. Um, what about? Can I ask a question about? Like on a patient safety angle, like I've been trying to think about, well, what what is the way forward, and what what how can we kind of move beyond this like conflict? Really, <laughs> can you tell I'm a conflict avoider? But um, the 
like, I, I was just thinking about how, like, all this is completely anecdotal, but my own experiences and GPs um, that I've spoken to um, are finding general practice really tough at the moment. Uh, really long days, um, a lot of uh, patient contacts within a day, whether that's by e-consult, telephone, face-to-face. Everyone is doing face-to-face as well. Um, but, uh, and I just think like it's getting to a point where it's feeling unsustainable, that kind of relentless sort of pressure. And I just wonder if like that is something that I hear some people talking about, but the conversation, particularly when it's coming from sort of Department of Health, um, Sajid Javid type level, there's not really a conversation about um, about that. Like, is this pattern of working and piling on more pressure safe for patients? So, well, if we go on to our interview then, um, last week in the BJGP, uh, a piece of uh, research, a qualitative research was was published, um, lead authored by Lucy Martin. She's a GP in the, the West Midlands. Uh, and she spoke to 27 mid-career GPs uh, last year in 2020. Uh, the focus was on their personal resilience and the things in the workplace and outside that, that reduced or enhanced their, their resilience. Um, and a big theme of that was about the amount of clinical work and the intensity of that work, and all, all very relevant, I think, to what we've been talking about. So, should we have a uh, listen to, to, to Lucy uh, telling us more about that after this from our sponsor? When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So, when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Lucy Martin about her work. Medical with, protection uh, is always here for you with expert time. medical and legal advice, now go to that including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And let's now go to that interview with Lucy. Right, I'm, I'm Lucy Martin. I'm a GP uh, who works in Dudley in the West Midlands. Um, I work the rest of my week in a non-clinical role as a, a medical director with another colleague in a very newly formed NHS trust. Yeah, I don't think anybody was really talking about quitting. I think that was, which was reassuring. I think people were more talking about changing the way they work their lives and where they felt they were in terms of how long they had left in their careers and, and how they would sustain mm. that. So most of them were talking about either having reduced their clinical hours to do something else um, or planning to reduce or 
they've already reduced and planning to reduce further. But everybody was reducing the clinical side. They weren't mm. reducing their other sides. And the interesting thing that I thought was that um, people weren't planning to have more leisure on the whole. They were largely planning to find other jobs within the GP profession. Mm. And we know that's very wide, isn't it? The opportunities that you've got to, to work as other types of clinical, non-clinical um, roles. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of the, the interesting part okay, to me. I just think so. As, as someone who's gone from seven sessions to six to four and soon to zero, <laughs> that mm. makes sense. But, and that's, that's seen right across, mm. isn't it? Well, and what, why is that then? Is it, again, I'm thinking about the current sort of political or sort of stuff in the media about GPs and, and the general response we're seeing from GPs about workload. Mm. What, what, what did your research tell you? Was it, was it similar things about the way that... GP workload has got out of control? Yeah, there, there were no surprises, I think is what it's safe to say. Um, a lot was around um, what I'd call work intensification in, in organisational psychology terms. You know, that's sort of the way the day has become very much more busy, very crowded, mm. um, lots of decision-making, lots of interruptions, those types of things. Work de- demands in terms of pure workload. Um, but then the other kind of more peripheral things like loss of autonomy, loss of control over that, um, increasing and increasing administrative stuff, the transfer of work from secondary care to primary care, um, and then things like um, regulatory activity, um, patient demand featured a lot as well. So the way the way the culture seems to be now di- di- um, driven by more of a um, defensive medicine approach perhaps but also the patient complaints driven culture mm. sort of seems to be overriding a lot of the way we work today so it, that there was it was myriad yeah. really a lot but but nothing that was unexpected i guess just just on that work intensification um theme um maybe maybe this wasn't so much from your research but but from your experience i mean where where do you think that's come from can we can we track back because i'm thinking 10 years ago when i was first training didn't feel like the same level of inten- intensity and I'm, I've always thought maybe it's something at the practice or but actually I, I feel like it's as everyone's saying the same thing where is it coming from? Mm. I don't know it's, it's uh, similarly I mean I've been a 20-year practitioner and I think when I look back to the days when I first started as a GP 20 years ago yeah the job was difficult and busy but nowhere near as it is now I think Lots of factors like technology has made a, uh, made a difference. So this, there's something about what they, again, what they term in the psychological research as always on culture, where you've got phones, you know, iPads, other other unbranded tablets and such available. So you, you have access to your work in a much more uh, nebulous way than you did before. There was no going in at nine o'clock and finishing at six o'clock. It was all very, you can do it anytime, anywhere, any place, anywhere. Uh, so there's that. And I also just think the, the, the just the, the demands of the job have changed, haven't they? Medicine has changed so much in 20 mm. years. You think about all the the complexity of what we're doing for people, the drive to move hospital care from the hospital back into the community inevitably means that the work that's associated with that, mm. uh, like the governance and, and all the safety netting follows mm. it to, out, to the, out to primary care. There's, there must be dozens of reasons how life has changed over 20 yeah, years that have influenced yeah, no it. single reason as ever, I suppose. Mm. Um, so when you were talking to people, um, did you get an idea of whether GPs were already dropping sessions? Yeah, it was definitely happening. 
um, a couple of, in fact, I sent a copy of my paper to the participants just as a thank you, because most of them had expressed an interest of seeing the research when it was completed. And a couple of the emails bounced back to me, which indicated that they were no longer active NHS net emails. So it worried me that perhaps those doctors had left altogether. Um, there might, obviously might be other explanations, but yes, GPs were telling me about how they had recently, they were about to, or they had plans in the very near future to change their direction. A couple of the GPs have been in touch with me and told me that they have done so. One I know has left a partnership. Another one has reduced sessions down from five to one. There's, you know, there's a, there's a number of things, examples of it being a live issue. As a medical director of a trust, from a management point of view, how worried are you that this is impacting patient care? Yeah, it can't not worry anybody. I think it's, it, there's been a lot of attention on the recruitment of young doctors into the general practice field. There's been a bit of focus on trying to stop people from retiring. But I think the biggest issue here is this is a bunch of very experienced and GPs, GPs with lots of useful working life left that um, are not going to be around to care for those patients. And that's that's ultimately everybody's problem, isn't it? Um, the the latest trend in the mainstream me- media to uh, denigrate the profession still further has really not helped this matter at all, has it? But yes, I suppose ultimately it's not about not just about worrying for the well-being of one's colleagues or one's employees, but how is this going to pan out and affect patient care now, now and in the very near future? Mm. I think. Have you um, have you seen of any very creative ideas or or solutions that that you see no i know i i again i wish i could give you an answer that yes i have the solution in my back pocket and here it is but i I don't think it is i think it's it's a it's got to be a multitude of things but surely first there's got to be a conversation about the uh, you know the acceptability of of the job and the contents of the job the demand of the job the resources that are available to us not necessarily financial resource although that is part of it but all of the things that um make the job easier um, I, I did. I think I put into the in the early on in the paper something about a magic GP tree, which mm. probably sounds a little bit trite, but ultimately I think that's that's the solution, isn't it? That we need more doctors. But how to how to do that? I have no idea. It's, but we must try and do something to stop doctors like us mm. from from leaving. Do you think the role of a GP, as it was fifty years ago, needs to be rethought? In 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 some ways, the role has changed so much just in the last decade or so I think I thinking back I kind of grieve for my old job where I used to be able to go out and do home visits and spend lots of time with the dying um, and those kinds of things that we feel is a fundamental part of the job but actually when you look at look back it is no longer a fundamental part of the job because much of that will fall to our training doctors or um, our, our um, uh, health professional colleagues um, so Maybe we, that is part of the answer that we have to sit down and have an honest conversation about what GPs really think their role is and what they really feel that they need to do in the future. We can't carry on doing everything. And every year there's more everything. I agree. I agree. And, and actually the, the bits of the job which we don't do as much of anymore are, are perhaps the ones which were the ones which we were most um, sticky and rewarded by and wanted to do. Yeah. And perhaps attracted to yeah. us in the job in the yeah. first place. So perhaps that's what people see when they think of general practice. It's more of a, a headache and much less of the pleasant part. It's, di- it's difficult to explain to people why looking after the dying, for example, is pleasant. Mm. But 
it's such a rewarding and fulfilling thing to be able to do, isn't it? But yeah, we don't get a chance to do that so much now. So lots of different themes there. Um, I suppose the, the one that came really struck me was about work intensification. And maybe that's what we were touching on there and just how draining it is. I just go, just come home from work. Or it's only two days a week that I'm working in, in general practice. I'm just so drained. And the next day, just, just recovering basically and trying to do BMJ work, but mostly just <laughs> feeling tired. Um, it's such a big point, isn't it? A really important point. We don't really talk so much about yeah, it's a huge point. I mean, I think that um, so much of that interview was resonant um, that, that in the ways that the job has changed. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is it is very demanding general practice, and um, you know the number of contacts that we all have now, and um, it's it's not surprising that people are feeling that they they need to do less of it in order to cope with with the role. Um, and I do wonder, you know, that there's a a different framing of this conversation about, you know, GPs might be around, you know, we want, it's good for patients if you have a um, well-rested, active, you know, undemoralized or moralized, is that the, is that the opposite? But if you have a, a happy, healthy workforce, that is good for patients. But we seem to be responding to this problem in the opposite, in the opposite way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, lots to reflect on there. Yeah, I agree. It really resonated with me when Lucy said this kind of always on complaint driven culture. Um, I think that having, you know, having hours where you simply cannot be off is a real challenge. Um, I mean, when I was doing my training, I used to sometimes give my phone number to patients who were high risk, and then you'd get text messages on the weekend. And it's, I mean, I tried, you know, we all tried, we tried to care and do our best, but the expectations around the frequency of communication and the speed of that communication have really changed. Mm. That's just such a broader societal change, isn't it? And it's just how it impacts general practice. I think that happens speaking to people who do all sorts of other careers, feeling the same thing. Maybe you have it too, Gareth, as a, as a journalist, you know, Yes, yeah, I, I was just trying to reflect on that actually. I, I guess, yeah, it, it's it speaks to this sort of whole this digital world that we live in a little bit as well, isn't it? It's sort of that. Um, I guess from my point of view as a journalist, you know, in the past, it would have been easier to switch off over the weekend or on days when I wasn't working. But now it's like you have Twitter on. It feels like you're at work because you're just reading. You know, I follow lots of doctors, lots of medical people, lots of health policy people, and. You just want to have a little scroll on Twitter over the weekend, you end up sort of getting drawn into work issues and thinking yeah. about it and then sort of thinking, okay, well, I need to be engaged in this. This is important. And it, it, mm. it it's always on. That's what it is. It's uh, but it's hard to, it's hard to detach yourself from that unless you actively try to do that. And even then it's not always easy. Have you seen that um, David Mitchell's sort of sketch or monologue where he, he says, you know, the internet was just a bad idea. We need to turn it off. I have to think back to that and and even say that to people and, and they just look at me like I'm a complete weirdo. Like, you know. We're too far <laughs> now. But, it, but it, it, you know, many of these things, you know, I feel we, we can sort of track to these broader changes and, and, you know, not to sound like a complete Luddite, but 
you know, if we didn't have social media, then some of this would be a bit better. And actually, we didn't get to it in the um, interview, but Lucy, one of the themes that came out of Lucy's work was um, people seeing social media as a negative thing, actually, and um, this sense, again, that they have to always be on or or that they're not succeeding if they're not taking part in that. Uh, and mm. and perhaps, um, yeah, not, not being successful because they're not managing to keep up with their peers in terms of their... Um, yeah, you know what I'm saying, Jenny. I, I do, because I completely agree with you. Um, and I think particularly for people who, you know, are trying to build their career or perhaps they do a little bit of public health, um, there's, you know, med Twitter and all of these other spaces where you really, it. I mean, you really feel like if you're not involved there that you're somehow failing or you're not being kind of self-promoting enough to build a reputation to build your profile to do all these things and and who honestly who has time to be on Twitter that much like I do not understand it there are not enough hours in the day well yeah, well, so, yeah something great. somewhere is missing out isn't it if you're spending that much time on Twitter then you're not spending it on something else what whatever mm. that whatever that something is yeah. it's a uh, seeing patients face to face Gary for example <laughs> Yeah. In my case, I've replaced sleep with doom scrolling, yeah. which is oh, no. my my favourite pastime. So, yeah. Um, but I mean, just to, I, I was going to say play devil's advocate, but I'm not because I I this is actually something I think is true. But like you know, on the other hand being able to access um, your medical systems from home has meant people have been able to work from home during the pandemic. If you're um, clinically extremely vulnerable, mm -hmm. you've, as a GP, you've been able to keep working um, during the pandemic. You know, a lot of those systems have meant that, you know, that they're good and, you know, they probably allow people to work a bit more flexibly as well. So I guess as with all of these things, it's about using them um, in a way that like serves us rather than, I feel like that, that those those examples are always cited without any kind of count, counterbalance <laughs> argument, which is that overall this makes us all sort of slightly less happy, more stressed out people. But I mean, that's true for just everybody. Mm. Like yeah. nobody's happy on Twitter. Mm. <laughs> nobody's, you know, just, just, yeah. just nobody's happy. That's, it's not just. <laughs> 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 um, but going back to, to Lucy's point, so, um, maybe just to, to get that back in there. You know, she was saying she grieves for for her old job, and I think that that job yeah. was seeing people in person and at really important times in their life or their their, their ill health, and not sitting in front of a screen you know, going through um, messages from, from, from people. So I think the two are related, aren't they? This, this is screen time versus actually being being with a patient. Yeah, I mean, that bit really kind of hit home of that interview because I felt exactly the same. And I always, you know, nostalgia, I think, is, um, you know, just a bit dangerous sometimes <laughs> because... I think things have changed. Like I, I miss a time when, you know, I did general practice because I love the idea of being a family doctor and the continuity and, and seeing someone grow up, you know, that sort of thing was, was why I wanted to do it. And that you don't, and particularly being a GP in London, it's rare to have that, I think. And particularly as a locum now who works for the BMJ. But um, uh, I think that the, 
yeah maybe change is inevitable and we we should like let go of that like you know but but I don't think that exists so much anymore do you think if you found that you you would be doing more general practice now maybe 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 I need to move to like (laughs) Wales maybe outer Hebrides (laughs) and be a Wales yeah all comes back to moving to Wales maybe but I think that um I think that as as you also talked about in that interview, there are other drivers of like, you know, as a society we're changing, there, you know, our demand for things is different. Our acceptance for waiting for things is different. You know, I, I just think we've, we've moved on from that. Um, mm. Unfortunately, like I miss that, but I feel that nostalgia for that time is probably not helping us as GPs because I don't know if it's possible to get that back. Yeah. And Jenny, I think you you said before, oh, go on, go on, you go on. Well, I was about to. Well, I was just about to say in reaction to that, you know, it's interesting because I, I'm not sure that I've been practicing long enough to have that kind of nostalgia, but I do, I do think it's problematic when part of your medical education, part of your training is to learn how to conduct an interview while also taking notes on a computer and looking at a screen and how to orient yourself to the patient relative to the screen. I think that's problematic. But what I was going to say is to kind of push on the other side, and this is something that Lucy mentioned as well, which is, you know, those changes have also meant that more of us have continued in the profession by virtue of doing reduced hours and changing the expectation around full-time compared to part-time means that, you know, because our our demands for all of those things, our levels of acceptability, our expectations have also changed being part of this society, being part of these kind of cultural waves. And so, you know, but, but the fact that people are now more accepting of the fact that women can have families and also be a GP and work, you know, limited hours or not, not work during school pickup times or, or that men cannot work during school pickup times or that, you know, we can only work a couple, you know, we can, we can have clinical jobs where we're there, you know, a few times over the course of a week and maintain continuity that way. And I I just, you know, I, I personally feel a lot of gratitude for the fact that there are options now that didn't exist before mm. and i'm thinking about the, the the we have this contract jenny in in the uk that's called the bma model contract and it's served as well i think generally but it's very defined as you know a session of work is four hours ten of course it's never four hours ten but if you, no. if you do foot two sessions in a day then that's usually about 10 hours work um and with the nature of the work as it is now, it feels like that contract doesn't really reflect what is um, manageable at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And we're seeing private providers come up with much more, it seems, flexible um, terms, perhaps. And I, w- I wonder again, if Gareth, do you have any sort of, um, do you hear much from the, the people about whether the terms of, you know, terms of employment for GPs need to change or... Or the BMA are thinking about this? Yeah, I haven't heard anything specific, but I, I, I do think that there is something in that, Tom, for sure. I mean, um, I think more generally, it, it's sort of going back to what Navjoit said about if you know this this is re- the reality of of where we are now, and that actually looking back is not always helpful. Then I suppose it's sort of incumbent on professional leaders, the government, whoever else is involved in sort of shaping these contracts and working conditions to try and create some sort of 
model that works and some positive vision for kind of people coming into the profession as well it's you know if, mm. if this is the if this is what we're working with then we need to make the best of it and we need to create a system that sort mm. of works mm. for patients as well as for for doctors and the rest of the workforce and maybe mm. that's missing at the moment and whether it's a new contract or whether it's something wider than that it does feel like there's a bit of a kind of void there at the moment uh, in the UK anyway because um, I feel like after six hours I'm still I'm still going pretty well I'm enjoying it it's just after 10 11 12 is when I just lost the will to live and mm. and yeah. that's yeah we should be recognizing that and maybe yeah yeah, yeah the job can't hinge on like superhuman mm. slash unsafe mm. levels mm. of of work so Jenny um how does this all seem to you it's it's this has been very parochial and sort of uk centric or is this some of these themes resonate to what you see elsewhere? Well, I was just thinking that, you know, okay, we're having a conversation about specifics to the UK, but actually so many of these themes resonate more broadly and in other countries. I mean, I think there's a similar story in a lot of places, this kind of chronic underinvestment, underfinancing in not only kind of primary care as a practice, but also in the um, training and educating of primary care doctors. You know, there are inappropriate incentive schemes for people to go into primary care, you know, as an, as an example that I know really well, the U.S., but in other countries too. I mean, it's, you know, there are reasons why there are GP and primary care doctor shortages in many countries in the world. And I think some of them are similar. I don't know, Gareth, it's something you have strong feelings about, but whether against all of this sort of drama that's playing out like how can like will people are people being attracted to the profession will is there something we should be doing differently well I mean I think that the number of medical school places was increased a few years ago and I think that that will start to kind of bring bring some results but obviously that's not an instant thing but um there's a more fundamental question isn't it that sort of what attracts you to want to be a GP. And I think this is why I think that, you know, the current approach from kind of policymakers, government is, is really counterproductive because it, if, if you're creating this kind of spiral of everyone being annoyed at each other, then it's, that's not a kind of from the outside looking in, that wouldn't necessarily be something that you'd think mm. I'd like to be a part of that. So I think it, it kind of needs, mm. needs both, sides to take a step back and then it's then it's really about kind of what what you feel that with i mean it part partly it's kind of resources and but it's also about kind of having a plan as well and um rather than just kind of sticking plaster to kind of keep mm. what's currently there going it's maybe thinking about it completely differently and um i mean i'm sure there you know that there are still lots of people out there that, that would like to come into general practice, but they need, they need a positive message coming out. It, it, yeah. If all they hear mm. is doom and gloom, then it's, that's difficult, isn't it? It's kind mm. of. Yeah. Yeah. And your earlier point as well about making the job something that is sustainable and that people will want to do. And I, I mean, if you look at a lot of, Tom, you were talking about um, uh, the, the newer sort of digital, maybe you were talking about this, but like the the ways that people are being recruited to services like Babylon, if you look at their job mm. ads, they'll all say things like no admin, no home visits, no mm. X, mm. Y, and Z, just seeing patients. Mm. And um, 
I, I don't know mm. if that's the, the way forward, but like just just thinking about those things, the, the ways in which the job not only can be made not just more appealing to people who want to do it, but just is it is more sustainable and more, more so stri- stripping out some Definitely. of that bureaucracy, basically. That that yeah, for sure. Mm. Interesting. I'm suddenly conscious that you know if we've got listeners who are at that so earlier stage in their careers or pre or considering GP, then um, they'll be thinking, "Gosh, these these guys or this this guy particularly has been moaning too much." So uh, <laughs> it would be it'd be interesting to hear from from some listeners, wouldn't it? Particularly if um, at that earlier stage, and you know, please please get in touch if uh, if you'd like to to tell us why you want to be a GP or what's attracting you or putting you off, perhaps. Um, maybe we could bring you on the podcast and, and uh, have Sounds a chat. Compare, compare and contrast with um, with those of us at the more cynical stages of our career. Exactly. You could do some reverse reverse mentoring. Is that the thing? Wait. Yeah. 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 I feel like I need it. <laughs> um, well, I think that's um, where we need to leave it for this, this episode, though. Um, thank you so much, Gareth. It's been great to have you on and hear your insights from from your journalistic perspective. Thanks for having me on, Tom, and everybody. It's been a pleasure. Will you come again? You've been brilliant. Yeah, we'll get you on again soon. Uh, And thank you, Navjoy. It's good to see you. Thanks so much. Uh, See you next time. Yeah, and Jenny, see you next time. Thank you, see you next time. <laughs> and of course, thanks to Lucy. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Uh, please go onto your podcast app and rate us or reviewers or forward it to a friend. And if you want to get in touch, it's practice at bmj.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Uh, I'm Tom Nolan. We'll see you next time.